the National Archives podcast series, Solving Census Problems, presented by Dave Annell. Problem solving. This afternoon you're going to hear experts talking about how to solve and surmount those brick walls that we all come across in our family history. So to start with, um, solving census problems, I'm going to ask David Annell, our Development Manager and Value-Added Services Manager, talk to you about solving census problems. Dave works in the Advice and Records Knowledge Department and he organises the programmes of talks and lectures that we have weekly here at Kew. So without further ado, I'd like to invite Dave to come up and talk to you. Dave is a family historian in his own right before he joined the, the National Archives and he is something of an expert on solving census problems and finding people, those elusive ancestors, in census returns. So, Dave. Well, thank you, Mark, and uh, thank you, ladies and gentlemen, for coming along this afternoon. Um, I've only got about 25 minutes this afternoon to cover what's taken the best part of 25 years to piece together. So I'll get straight on with it, and I, I won't hang about. Apologies for that. One of the most frequent comments I hear from researchers in the reading rooms here and in my previous life at the Family Record Centre is something along the lines of, oh, my ancestors weren't in the 1901 census. So the aim of this afternoon's talk is to convince you that if your ancestors were living in England and Wales at the time of the census, they were almost certainly recorded, and you should be able to find them. The odds are firmly stacked in your favour in this case. So but we'll just start, though, by taking a very brief look at a few of the reasons why they might actually be missing from the returns, and it, it is really quite a small category. First one, I've headed civil disobedience. This is it's really relatively unlikely. This is where your ancestors actually refused to complete a census form. It is relatively rare... The use of local people as enumerators mean, meant that they pretty much knew who they were trying to count. Um, there was a fairly watertight system set up by the Registrar-General, and probably more than anything else, the fines of up to £5 for refusing to complete census forms were a bit of a, bit of a strong deterrent. And there is evidence that people were fined for, for refusing, so it's pretty rare. It really didn't happen very often. Were they genuinely missed? Did they just miss them out? Well, again, it could happen, but it's extremely rare. Again, we have this watertight system, local enumerators who knew the area. We do know that it did occasionally happen, and I've got an example actually with the Darwin family. In 1851, Charles Darwin's, two of Charles Darwin's daughters, who we know from documentary sources, were in Great Malvern. We know the actual house they were in on the night of the 1851 census, and they are quite simply not there. And it's not obviously it's not clear why they aren't they haven't been actually been recorded but we know that they were there obviously the problem you will have with your ancestors is you're unlikely to have diaries and letters of the period confirming that they were in a particular address on census night so it might be more difficult to spot but it's relatively rare again here's the next category the revolting enumerator or the enumerator strikes back the census returns throw up every now and then some wonderful comments from enumerators who were concerned either about some of the buildings they had to go into, some of the, you can picture the sort of urban squalor, if you imagine Fagin's Den and some of these places where they just really didn't want to go in to collect the forms. But also they complained quite a lot about their pay and conditions. One comment where an enumerator said that if government officials had been asked to do this, they would have been paid treble the amount. Another one who ended his census book, and you can almost hear the sigh as he wrote, no more at this price. <laughs> so they didn't like it. 
they, they weren't always very happy about what they had to do, but again, most of them were very conscientious, very keen to get the job done well, so I don't think this is a huge, has a huge impact. Another thing that we often hear people say is that, oh, perhaps they were overseas. Well, it's possible. Single men or even married men in the British Army, of course, are frequently not going to be caught by the enumerator. Similarly, people serving at sea, perhaps in the Merchant Navy, if the ship was a long way from port, they may not have been captured by the system. So, yes, there are occasions when it might happen. Occasionally merchants, even some labourers and engineers, might have gone overseas to work for a short time. But not very likely, really. Most of our ancestors never left the shores. So you should find them some living somewhere. But what if the name was unknown? These are the itinerant travellers, referred to as the gypsies and tramps by the census legislators. People living in caravans, tents, sheds and barns. Obviously very difficult for the enumerators to deliver scheduled, probably even harder for them to collect them, because if they did deliver them, they're probably gone by the next day when they want to collect them. So it's very difficult for them to get details, and you'll often just see them, just a man aged 45, which is probably a guess. So that can be a tricky one. They, they may have been counted by the census enumerators, but we don't know who they were, so that, that's a bit tricky. The final category here is, well, I've put one of our censuses missing. We don't have 100% of the census returns that were completed. The 1861 census was particularly affected, but even then, no more than 2 or 3% of the returns are missing. And generally speaking, they're little bits of the census books, the front pages and the back pages. There are some significant chunks of the census, particularly Belgravia sub-district in 1861. The whole district has gone. Woolwich Arsenal, similarly, in 1861. If you're unfortunate enough to have ancestors in the Dunmo area of Essex, well, the whole of the registration district for 1851 has gone. Paddington in 1841 has gone, and little bits and pieces here or there. Generally speaking, 1871, 81, 91 and 1901 are virtually complete. So that's just a, a little run-through of the, the areas where perhaps people actually might fail to show up in the returns. But realistically speaking, if they were in the country, the chances are very firmly in your favour that you should be able to find them. Let's just remind ourselves of the actual process behind taking the census. You have to see where mistakes can creep in, because this is what we're up against. It's not that they're not recorded, it's that some piece of information about our ancestors is recorded differently to how we would expect it. I won't say that it's wrong, because wrong is quite a subjective word in this area, but it's just not how we would expect to see it. So the census returns, in the first place, the schedules were delivered by the enumerator to the householders. Then the householder completes the schedule. The enumerator then com collects the completed schedule and copies the details into his summary book. And finally, more recently, a transcriber attempts to, re to read what the enumerator wrote down. So we've got four stages of the process, and at each stage, problems could be introduced. Mistakes and errors could creep into the records. And I know I, I heard a little chuckle when we mentioned transcribers there. Yes, there are problems with the transcription on the modern, some of the modern census returns. There's no question about that. But equally, the process of the enumerator trying to read the householder's handwriting is almost just as big a problem, and there's lots of evidence of that. So what with our illiterate ancestors, a whole host of revolting enumerators and modern-day transcribers, who may or may not be familiar with English and Welsh surnames and place names, well, considering all that, it's a miracle that we ever find anything. But we do. 
or at least we do if we familiarise ourselves with a few basic principles and research strategies. Wildcards. How many of you here are familiar with wildcards? Can I have a quick show of hands, please? Good, that's a fair number of you. Now, if you're not familiar with wildcards, I'm going to give you a brief introduction to them. Those of you who are familiar, talk amongst yourselves for a few minutes. We'll be right back. It is quite important that you understand how you use wildcards so that you can get the best out of your search. There are two different types of wildcard that we use in searching. And this isn't just about family history search. This is about searching databases generally. The first wildcard is the industry standard is a question mark, which stands for a single character. I'll explain what this means in a minute by example, just to tell you what that this this actually the, the definition of it. For some reason, the 1901 census website has an underscore character for a single character instead of the question mark. So it's a little underscore near the top of your keyboard. The asterisk stands for any number of characters, including none. Now that sounds like a strange thing to say, and the best way really is just to explain it by example. If I was searching for my own surname, Anil, which is normally spelled A-N-N-A-L, if I use this term, A-N-N, then a question mark, then the letter L, I will get all those variants that you can see there. So whether there's an E, an A, an E, or a U in that place, a single search will bring up all those variants. Does that make sense? The asterisk is even more powerful. Imagine you're looking for the name Shepherd. If any of you have got ancestors called Shepherd, you'll know how many different ways that surname could be spelled. But almost always, it's going to start S-H-E-P, and it's going to end R-D. doesn't matter how many characters there are in the middle. If you use an asterisk in there, it will pick up all those variants that you can see on the screen. And that's just seven variants that I could come up with just on a, a single search in one particular district. So you can see how powerful the asterisk can be. You can also use more than one wildcard in your search. And if you were searching for the name Johnson and all its many variants, that would be a pretty powerful search. J-O-H-N-S, then an asterisk, a wildcard, then an N, and then another asterisk. Now, I said before that the asterisk could stand for no characters, and you'll see that it would bring up any results where the last character was N. So if there was nothing after the N, it would produce that result. Does that make some sort of sense? You, you really do need to understand wildcards. Right, the rest of you, we're back. So let's just start a typical search. I'm just going to be looking at these two websites. These are the websites that are partners with the National Archives. So if we start by looking at the 1901 census website, let's just cross our fingers and hope that the technology works. Right, this is the 1901 census website. I'm going to go straight to the search the census bit. I'm just going to type in, this is the sort of thing you might do the first time you ever approached a website like this. So I'm going to type in, we're looking for a gentleman or a young boy called Herbert Clippingdale. Wonderful name. So I'm going to put in Herbert there. You'll notice I haven't used a capital letter because it's not case sensitive. You don't need to worry about that. What is important is that you get the first name and the surname in the right boxes because I'm forever getting them the wrong way around and different databases have different orders so it, it can be confusing. So I'm putting in Herbert Clippingdale. I know that he's male. I know that he was born in 1900 because my great aunt Maud told me. And I know that he was born in London and that he grew up in London so he'll be living there. So I put all that information in. I do a search and I bet you've all seen that screen haven't you? No results. So why haven't we found any results? The answer is that if one of those pieces of information that I put in on that first screen is wrong, and remember I said that wrongs are the subjective term anyway, you're not going to get any results. The computer is not clever. What you need to think 
And what I want you to all go away to reciting today is the phrase, less is more. You don't need to complete all those boxes for most searches. If you think about it, how many Herbert Clippingdales do you actually think there are in the country? We don't need to, uh, to say that he's male. We don't need to say that he's born in 1900. We don't need to say that he's born in London. And we don't need to say where he's living. We can just put in his name. And now when we do the search, we only get one result, and there he is. So why didn't it come up before? Yeah, we said that he was born in London, and he is born in London. He's born in Cricklewood. That's London, isn't it? But it doesn't say London, and the computer is not clever. The computer was looking for that string of letters spelt London, and it didn't see it, so it said no results. We said he was born in 1900, so his age ought to appear as one, surely. But no, because he was born near the end of 1900, and the census is taken at the end of March. He hadn't had his first birthday yet. So that's the basic principle. Less is more. I'll do another search, and this is actually something Mark will recognise this because we were working together in the inquiry room on, in the reading room on Tuesday afternoon, and a gentleman was looking for an ancestor of his called Philip Lipsish, Jewish family, lived in Leeds, and knew that the, his great-grandfather, I think, was born in 1893 in Leeds, and he tried all sorts of variants of the surname. He tried everything he could, and he could not find Philip Lipsish. What I did was I just put in... P-H-I-L as the first name, because obviously Philip could be spelt in a number of different ways. I left the surname out completely. I put in the year of birth, 1893, plus or minus a couple of years, and I said that he was born in Leeds. I'm just going to change that result there on search, and it tells you if you enter where born, you must also enter gender. Well, I don't want to, but I have to, so I'll click mail there. And we get a result, we get a list of 29 results. Now, what I then did was I just looked down the list of results and eventually came to, I hope you can see this at the back, this gentleman here, this boy here called Philips Lupsig. And I was pretty sure this was going to be our man because I wasn't so concerned about the variant of his name because his name's going to be spelt so many different ways. It's not familiar to the enumerators. He probably, his parents probably couldn't speak, read or write English. So they're going to write down what it looks like rather than what it sounds like. They would probably try to write it down the census and the enumerator would attempt to to read that and here he is at the top of the page I'll just try to zoom in on this a little bit and we can see there we go it probably even says Leipzig I'm not sure it might not be Leipzig it might actually be Leipzig but you can see that the shape is what I was looking for I was looking for a name that was the same basic shape as Leipzig and that's the technique that you need to use less is more wherever possible leave the surname out of your search I'm just going to go onto the ancestry website now and I'm going to do a similar thing for the 1871 census. This was a problem we had at the Family Record Centre about a year ago. Someone was looking for an ancestor called Ada Blissett and they tried all sorts of searches but again by leaving out the last name and knowing enough about the person, this was a girl who was born round about 1869 and she was born in the parish of St Giles in the fields in London. So you can just put in a keyword there. I put in a search for anyone called Ada who was born, plus or minus a couple of years, 1869, plus or minus a couple of years, in St Giles. And again, I've got a list of results. And you can see this one here, Ada Blipple. Well, Blipple is not a variant of Blissett, but it's the same shape. And if we look at this, we'll see that the P that they've transcribed there is an attempt to transcribe the old double S, which was frequently used in Victorian script. 
let's just see if we can zoom in on this there we go I'll put the magnifying glass on it's a very useful tool this magnifying glass on the top of the ancestry page there we go blipple the enumerator hasn't crossed his T is, is L sorry he hasn't crossed his T so they do look like L's but there we are but again I got it by not putting in the surname and then looking down the list of results anything up to 20 30 results even up to 100 results doesn't take you too long to go through and look at them for a particular shape ideally well ideally you want one result and you want it to be the right one but something like that is not too difficult to look through one thing to watch out for on the ancestry database is that they have separate bits for england wales channel islands and the isle of man i spent some time once looking for someone called benjamin powell who had lived his whole life in shropshire was born there, I'd found him in the 1901 census, 1891 and 1881, and I could not find him in 1871. Tried all these techniques, found nothing, and then I thought, hold on a second, he's only a few miles from the Welsh border, and sure enough, there he was living in Wales in 1871, so do bear that in mind. I just want to run through, I put on your chair a list of um, tips for searching the census online, and I just want to run through these and just give you a few little, little pointers. The first thing I've said is less is more, so try to enter as few details as possible. Try different combinations of name, age and birthplace. If leaving the surname out doesn't help, put the surname back, take the first name out. Leave them both out and just put the age and the place of birth. You can do that. It's very, very powerful, particularly the Ancestry database. Very powerful. Always, when you're searching the Ancestry database, tick the exact results box. Did you see that little box at the top? I'll just show you it again. I always leave that box ticked. If you don't, you get all sorts of random answers. In theory, the system is trying to guide you to the right answer. It's trying to hold your hand. But we don't need our hands held. What we need is we need to be empowered. We need to understand how the database works, and we need to control our search. If you don't tick that box, you have very little control over your search. If you tick it, then you can manipulate exactly the results you want. Okay. So use the wildcards, I've mentioned those, that's very important. Think about these county changes we mentioned about Cricklewood before. Walthamstow was formerly in Essex. We may think it's in London because it's on the underground, but it was in Essex. And if you're looking for someone who's born or living in Walthamstow, it's not London as far as the 19th century census is concerned. Similarly, Greenwich was in Kent, uh, Rotherhithe in Surrey, Barnet in Hertfordshire, all these places that we think of as London now. Avoid precise birthplaces wherever possible. People were not always consistent when it came, came to giving their birthplace. And as a rule, they tend to be less precise the further they are from their birthplace. Let's just give you an example. If I was in New York now and someone said to me, where are you from? I would say London. If you asked me today, where are you from? I'd say Watford. If I was in Watford and someone said, where are you from? I'd say from Bushy. Now, there'd be no point in telling the person in New York that I'm from Bushy because he wouldn't have a clue what I'm talking about. It's the same thing with the census, with our, with our ancestors giving details to the enumerators. They're likely to give the name of the nearest market town, large town, or, or, or city even, rather than the precise name of the parish that they came from, if they're a long distance from home. Consider alternative spellings of names. Now, I've said that it's not too much about variants. It is more about the shape of the name, but still, it's worth bearing this in mind. The idea, standardised spelling of personal place names is a relatively modern concept. I'll quote from my favourite author, Charles Dickens, here. In Great Expectations, the following dialogue takes place between our hero, Pip, and his brother-in-law, Joe Gargery. How do you spell Gargery, Joe? I asked with a modest patronage. I don't spell it at all, said Joe. But supposing you did? It can't be supposed.
Now the point of this is not only could our ancestors not read and write, many of them, they actually had no concept of the correct spelling of their name. And obviously the significance to family historians, I hope, is quite clear. And the lesson here is an obvious one, but it never fails to surprise me how often I hear people saying that so-and-so can't be their ancestor, the surname's Brown, and this one's got an E on the end. Please, Brown with an E or without an E, it's the same name. There's no difference. So think about the shape of the name. That's a very important thing. Where possible, when we're looking at ages, search for children rather than adults because the children's ages are more likely to be exact. They're more likely to know their age. They're less likely to lie about the age of the children. Um, but be careful. Uh, a search in the 1871 census for a child called Emma Potton, who was born in Clerkenwell in December 1870. Did I say a four-year-old child? Sorry, a four-month-old child. My mistake there. A four-month-old child. You won't find her because, unfortunately, it's been transcribed as four years instead of four months. That's the sort of thing that you can throw you out. But generally speaking, children's ages are more likely to be accurate, but just bear that little thing in mind. And similarly, search for the family member with the least common first name. So search for Herbert Smith rather than his brother John, because he's going to be easier to find. You can also try searching by address. In 1881 census and in the 1901 census, you can search by address. It's not easy, but you can do it. And here at the National Archives, we do have a full set of street indexes on, and, and copies of census returns on microfilm, so you can look up street indexes for all the major towns and cities. That's another way around. But finally, never give up. As I said at the start of this, if your ancestors were living in England or Wales at the time of the census, they are almost certainly recorded, and family historians never give up. Thank you. <laughs> This event was recorded live on the 19th of June 2008 as part of Ancestors Afternoon at the National Archives Kew. This podcast is copyright the National Archives. All rights reserved. <laughs>